Well, happy Palm Sunday. Good morning, church. This is our second soft opening worship service, and I want to take the time once again to appreciate everyone, you know who you are, who's working in front and behind the scenes uh, to make our, our worship in this new building possible. As we enter into this new phase of life in our church, the pastors, once again, you heard Pastor Gabe pray. Uh, if you attended any of our other services, you would have heard it prayed over and announced that we want to, again, exhort and encourage everyone to strive for church-wide unity. And that's where we really want to invite you to our Good Friday service. Uh, as as uh, Pastor Gabe mentioned, that we're going to start our service at 745, and then uh, it will the service itself will end by 825. So come for the 15-minute devotional sermon. But it will be very, very simple. Uh, English will worship in here. Cantonese will worship in the Mac. Mandarin will worship in the PC. And, and basically, simultaneously, we'll all be worshiping on the same campus. So just be patient with parking. Um, and, and at 825, every single congregation is going to end their service, then we're going to make our way out to the outdoor plaza. So for English, it's just going to be straight out those back doors right there, and the entire church is going to come together for the Lord's Supper. And that's our symbol of unity. Even though we're worshiping in different rooms, we are very much one church. And this prepares our heart as we continue to pray, looking for every opportunity to, to see how, even though we worship in different language groups, in different rooms, very specific in cultural context, that whenever there's an opportunity to show our oneness, we, we take that opportunity. And that's what our Summer Spark is all about. So Summer Spark is not just a children's ministry or youth ministry, uh, but that community outreach where we have, it, it's going to be a, a large event where Cantonese, Mandarin, and English are coming together, uh, but English is going to anchor some of the main outreach components. Okay, so keep that in prayer. And so once again, please strive for church-wide unity on all fronts as we're transitioning uh, into this, this expansion of our campus. I mentioned Easter is next week, which means this is Palm Sunday. I don't know if it's too soon to make this joke, but no, Palm Sunday is not a palm across your face. I thought Palm Sunday was at the Oscars, but that is not Palm Sunday. Uh, palm, palm Sunday, uh, that, is, that, is, that is not right. <laughs> but what palm, palm Sunday is when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem and he was coordinated through palms. They were waving palm branches and bowing down to him as king. But it was a false coronation. Because you know the same people who cried out to them, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, king of David, are the same people who are going to cry out a few days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so really, Jesus knew what was happening. He was coming in humility. He was riding on a colt. And he would go to die on the cross. For our sins and that's good friday and so we call this the triumphal entry and that's what palm sunday is all about so take some time this week especially to prepare for good friday when jesus died for our sins and come celebrate with us next sunday we're going to have baptisms we're going to do it right here in this tank those drums are going to come down those huge components are going to be lifted away by some of our young men god willing uh and then, and then uh, we're going to be in there baptizing uh, members, new members uh, into our English congregation. So come for that celebration, and that's going to be next Sunday. Now, going to the cross was part of God's sovereign plan. 
Yet we know that God allowed the Jewish leaders and the Romans to kill Jesus. But it was a plan where this tension, this escalation was built up over time. It did not just happen overnight. And so what we see and what we've seen in the Gospel of John is last week, we saw that while the Jews view themselves as children of Abraham, Jesus made it clear to them that, spiritually speaking, they were illegitimate children of Abraham. Why? Because clearly they did not receive the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so there's this tension that's escalating, where at the end of last week's sermon, Jesus actually alluded and referred to the Jews as children of Satan. And he's going to continue this tense dialogue with them where at the end of today's passage, they are going to pick up stones ready to kill him. So I've entitled our sermon today, From Ridicule to Ready to Kill. And I know it's corny, but Jesus is the cornerstone. So from ridicule to ready to kill Christ. If you say ready to kill really fast, it sounds like ridicule. And there's more deeper meaning behind this. We know that Jesus says that anger expressed reveals the heart of murder. That most of us in here are not murderers. But whenever we have anger, it is the seed and is the heart of murder. So even though the Jews are ridiculing Christ with their words, very quickly, Jesus exposes what's really in their hearts. That they're religious leaders on the outside, but the inside, they're ready to kill him. Their ridicule reveals that they're ready to kill their own God-given Messiah. So that's why we've entitled this sermon, From Ridicule to Ready to Kill Christ in an Instant. When they pick up stones in their hands, it actually represents the stones in their hearts, which is their hearts are hardened, hard as stone towards their Messiah and towards God. And so if you have God's word, will you meet me in John chapter 8 right now? John chapter 8. Meet me in verse 48 where we see point number one. Point number one, and we see three realities that are revealed in this heightened tension, in this dialogue. Three realities. Point number one is we see self-righteous deception behind their ridicule. The Jewish leaders are the seed of the serpent, Jesus said last week, and they're murderers at heart, and Jesus exposes this. And what we see today on full display is their self-righteousness, their self-righteous deception behind their ridicule. And in a moment after we read the verse, I'll show you why it's, it's their own deception. John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now I want you to think just conceptually. Many times when we ridicule people, especially if it's racial like this one, in superiority, when you call someone a low-life loser, I guarantee you it's because you don't see yourself as a low-life loser. So what is the opposite of a low-life loser? Whatever it is, that's how you see yourself. Your worth and your identity are revealed in your insults. If you insult someone, so I'm, I'm saying in this context, if you call someone a Samaritan, what do you mean by that as a Jew? You're saying, and, and so there is racial 
tones in here for the Jews. Okay? So they're saying we are the superior race. You are the half-breed Jews. You're dirty and impure. When you say someone has a demon, you are saying you have God or that you are of the light, that you're true and that you're pure. And so a simple exposition of the meaning of Samaritan and demon-possessed will give you an understanding of how the Jews built their identity. And I, again, I want you to think seriously that when you insult someone, you call them a Clipper fan, most likely you're a Laker fan. What do you mean by that, right? You're saying a lot of things. So from simple, silly insults to really derogatory insults, whenever you devalue someone else, it's because you think that the opposite is valuable and you actually think that's who you are. And how deceptive it is to think that we are the people of God, the chosen people of God, by insulting others when in reality we are not chosen of God. And that's what Jesus is revealing to them. And no wonder at the end of the sermon they want to kill him. To First, let's start with demon-possessed. Demon Basically what's happening is that Jesus is calling them a demon-possessed Samaritan. I, I mean, I'm sorry. The, the Jews are calling Jesus a demon-possessed Samaritan. When you look at the original languages, when you look at the Greek, this insult is one insult. It's not, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon, right? That's not two different insults. That's actually one, one insult. You could translate that, Jesus, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. It's one label. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as heretics, and the Jews viewed the Samaritans as demon-possessed. To be demon-possessed means to be filled with and to be directed by an evil spirit. One commentator explains it this way. Jesus was a Jew, and so for a fellow Jew to actually question your paternity is unthinkable. For a fellow Jew to question whether you are an heir of Abraham, for a Jew to question another Jew is unexplainable, that the only explanation is that you're possessed by a demon. And because Jesus was questioning whether they were true heirs of Abraham, their only insult to him is that you are crazy. You must be demon-possessed. You are beyond mental illness. You are demon-possessed. Now, what's the Samaritan? The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jews. The Samaritans, they descended from the Jews. And in the Old Testament, when the northern kingdom fell, some of the Jews remained in that land, in that northern kingdom of Israel, after its fall, and they intermarried with the Gentiles. And so already their children were half-Jewish and half, in their language, half-pagan, half-Gentile. And, and as a result, syncretism marked their worship. So you would have Jews that adopted Judaism that was mixed in with Gentile pagan worship, worshiping pagan gods. And so that's why they would refer to the Samaritans as heretics. And they also believed that the Samaritans worshipped uh, mystical gods and, demon, and they were demon-possessed. And so that's what's happening, right? So think about it. The Jews view themselves as not Samaritans, but they basically are, by rejecting the Messiah, they're worse than the Samaritans because they want to kill their own Messiah. 
And by saying that Jesus is demon-possessed, they're saying we are God-possessed. But you cannot be God-possessed if you're going to want to kill God's own son. And so their identity was built on this false notion of privilege and pride. And that's Jesus' point. So what we're dealing with in point number one is a classic case of false identity. The Jews here are under serious spiritual deception. And don't miss what I've been repeating is that you know that they're wrong because they think they're superior to everybody else. And that is precisely the point. Now, this leads us to point number two. Point number two is that they're actually under judgment. So point number two is divine judgment behind Jesus' word. So behind the Jews' insult, behind their insult of Jesus, their ridicule was selfish, self-righteous deception. Now, when Jesus responds behind his words are actually divine judgment. I want you to see this in verses 49 to 52. Now look at how Jesus answers them. He says, I do not have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it. He is the judge. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm just the messenger. If you insult me, calling me a demon-possessed Samaritan, you're actually insulting my father. And if you had any idea, Jesus is saying, who my father is, you would be sorry because he actually is the judge. And he's your judge. And now Jesus is going to build up and build up and build up to say more than this. But he's trying to say, basically, you don't know who you're messing with. You don't know who you're messing with. You guys have heard uh, the phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not really true. But sticks and stones will, will put Jesus on the cross, right? They will crucify him. Their words are no power to the eternal word, though, because sticks and stones may break Jesus, but these Jews, if they don't repent in eternity, they will burn in hell. Now, he doesn't say that outright. But that's what he's saying. And so it's insulting. It's offensive. You don't know who you're insulting. My father will deal with you. He is the judge. And then if you look at verses 51 to 52, it's very clear who Jesus' father really is. And here's where you see the theme of judgment. Don't miss this. Jesus begins to talk about death. You will not taste death. And when you define death and you really look at it and what he means by it, he's talking about judgment versus salvation from judgment. And so let me read this to you. First, verses 51 and 52. 52, he says, truly, truly. So look at the theme. You are of your father, the devil. He is a murderer. He is a liar. You're under deception. But Jesus is saying, truly, truly, the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You notice that? The Jews said to him, now we, know, now we know for sure that you have a demon because Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. What's happening there? You have a comparison of authority. You have a comparison of who has final judgment. So the Jews are saying, we got our canons. Play on words if you know the Bible. We have our canon of Scripture. 
Our authority is Abraham and the prophets. Our authority is the Old Testament. What's yours, Jesus? You say your word is authoritative? Who do you think you are? Now we know you're crazy because the people who we stand behind, yeah, they're dead. That's exactly Jesus' point. Jesus is the living God. Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. But that's the authority of the Jews. Their authority is merely based on the words, yes, spirit-inspired words, but the words of dead men. The Bible is authoritative. But beloved, that's why we care about Easter is that our authority is based on a resurrected and living Son of God. But he's saying, if you keep my word, he says it twice, right, in a sense. Look, look how, and I want you to see the detail. I want you to notice that actually the Jews respond to him in error, and he does not correct them because they're kind of right. Look at what, what I, 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 I highlighted for you behind the screen above me. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, what does it say? He will never see death. Now, look at what the Jews say to him. He says, they say, you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That's different. Seeing and tasting are different. Just ask anybody who's blind. Seeing and tasting are different. When I got COVID uh, like three, four months ago, I lost my taste for three to five days, but I could still see. I could see the food, couldn't taste it. It's, a, it's, a diff- it's different, but Jesus doesn't correct them because it's true. What's Jesus' point? Jesus is not talking about physical death. He's talking about judgment. Let me read it to you again. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste eternal death or judgment. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see eternal death and judgment. Jesus has been speaking spiritually. How do we know this? John chapter 5. The Pharisees and the the Jews, they weren't listening. They weren't listening. Look at John 5. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? If you hear my word, if you believe my word, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You will die like Abraham. You will die like the prophets. But I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about eternal life, Jesus is saying. He does not come into judgment. He will die, but he does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. My father, our pastor today, is the judge. So he does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. So what is Jesus saying? That there's more to this life. That there's more to this life. That everybody will die. Yes, it's inevitable. But there is an afterlife. And when Jesus goes to the cross, yes, they will kill him. But he, his resurrection shows us, case in point, that those who believe in him will have the resurrection. Then, we aren't there yet, but John chapter 11. So, I don't, I don't have to give you too much context. But this passage is about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So, that gives you enough context. But we'll get to it. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And once again, it's repetitive of our passage today. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Do you get that? Though you die, yet you shall live. Everyone who lives and believes shall never die. Do you believe this? So you see the connection in Jesus' teaching. He's saying, whoever hears my word and believes it, you will not die, you will live. That's the context that he's talking about. And so what does that mean for the Jews? That means for the Jews that he's judging them. He's saying, you want to put me to death. But I, and your authority is based on dead men. But I'm offering you eternal life. I'm offering you eternal life. I think it's fitting here to say, beloved, that the text calls for us to proclaim the gospel. Now, if there's anyone here today that maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe you've been in church for a month, maybe you're here seeking Jesus Christ. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, then give your life to Christ. Especially consider Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that Christianity is built on a living God. That is, it is not about what you just see happening here in this world. That all of us, one day we will die, we will taste death, our body will fall apart. Some of us, our lives will be taken suddenly, and we didn't plan for it. But there's a greater life insurance than what any insurance company will offer you. And it's not just life insurance. It is eternal life. It is a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Yes, it begins now. But you have to take seriously that our lives will end at any moment. This world is fleeting. If you haven't given your life to Christ, give your life to the only person who ever walked this earth who actually historically rose from the grave. Every prophet of every other religion has died. Even people that we uphold, even every biblical author who is authoritative has died. Paul is dead. John is dead physically, but they're living eternally with God. They're in heaven. So I cannot go on in this sermon without, again, beckoning you and not taking for granted that there's one of you in here today who doesn't really know Jesus. Maybe you think you do, but maybe you don't. Take the opportunity to consider these words. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. You will live. Everyone who lives believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You know, one of the hardest things this season, and it's hard for me just to operate, and I think it's hard for our pastors, it's hard for you too to just go on and not be affected emotionally. Though the Lord has kept us strong, if you've been attending our prayer meetings or if, if you know what's been going on, is that it's almost every single week that somebody is passing away or somebody has cancer or somebody is sick. And, and these two years have been especially hard, not because of COVID, but because not only do, do we have elderly getting sick and getting cancer, but we have young children and we have young adults, people in their 20s, babies, four-year-olds being diagnosed with cancer. Life is fleeting. And so that's tough when every single week there's somebody who's lost their, their wife, there's somebody who's lost, you know, somebody has passed away. It's way too early. But I will tell you this. God has been shepherding me and us. It's been so encouraging because when you talk to a believer, it is amazing. I've talked to, there's two men in this room that their wives have 
passed away way too early. There are people who have, 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 have lost loved ones. There are people who have, uh, there's a, a brother that I was on the phone with this week where his brother uh, passed away this week. And, and if you've been to our prayer meetings, you know we've been praying for him. But his brother's a believer. And so, so when we pray for someone who's passed away and they are believers, it is so different because when you talk to the, the person who's still alive, even though there's sadness and there's mourning, there's hope. And so in many ways, I am being pastored by individuals who tell me, Pastor, it's okay. It is sad, but we rejoice because they're with Jesus. And when someone loses their parents, it's just so amazing when, when you know that God is good, even when the world would say that life is everything, that once you die, it, it's miserable because life here on earth is all you have to live for. And Jesus is saying it's so much more. And we rejoice because we enter not into judgment, but into eternal life with Christ. So I push that before you once again. If you don't know Jesus, please come to Christ. And that leads us to point number two, uh, point number three. Why don't people come to Christ? How could it be that even these Jews of the Old Testament, or I mean during Jesus' day, that they knew the Old Testament so well, they knew it back and forth, but yet they truly didn't believe and they were blind. There was a hypocrisy. There was a self-righteousness. The Word of God wasn't doing the type of work uh, they needed to do. And it's because of who God truly is. God wants to come into our proximity. He, we were created to live in the presence of God. We were created not just to worship God from a distance, not just to follow a book of rules, but to have a relationship with God, but God wants all of you. And the closer God comes, like the way it's supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, the more, because of sin, you will be offended. Because God is saying, I want everything that you are. And so naturally, people are blind to truth, and apart from the Holy Spirit, they will find the truth offensive. The truth that will set you free is naturally offensive not just because it's true, but because the truth wants to set you free. In order for the truth to set you free, the truth has to get a hold of you, and the truth is going to get into you and offend you and change you, and the truth is going to tell you that you're a sinner and that I'm a sinner. The truth is going to tell you that everything you're living for is a lie. The truth is going to tell you that even the things that you build value on and how you prop yourself up, yes, even through insults, that it's only... It's going to only enslave you more. And so point number three, the third reality that the Jews of Jesus' day couldn't take is this offensive truth behind Jesus' claim. So this is the third truth, offensive truth behind Jesus' claim, the third reality that we see. And I want you to see this right away, verse 53. So, so here's what they say to him. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And, and they're just being logical. But Jesus is supernatural. He's going beyond our comprehension. Right? So he says, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? You're a lunatic. You're saying that if we believe in you, we'll never die? Because they're thinking physical. 
You're saying that if we believe in your words, we'll never taste or see death? They're thinking physical, and he's thinking, you need to be a born again to understand my words. Who do you think you are? And he's going to answer them, and it's, it's not pretty. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, and we'll, we'll exposit this more when we get to John 17. But it's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So now he's being very offensive. Now he's saying, my Father glorifies me, and if you didn't get the hint, my Father is Yahweh. My Father is your God. Punches throne. It's offensive. Verse 55, but you have not known him. You think you know all about him. You are the teacher of God's people, you religious leaders, but you've not known him. That's offensive to a religious leaders. If you came up to me and said, Hanley, you're a pastor, but you don't know the Bible. I, I, I probably should take that with humility, but I wouldn't lie to you. I think that would offend me. Hanley, what do you know about the Bible? I spend my life studying the Bible to preach it. What do you know about the Bible? What do you know about Christianity? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying to them. You, you've not known God, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word, but you don't. Verse 53, the Jews are, they are convinced now that Jesus has lost his mind. And verses 54 to 55, it reveals, it makes the same point that Jesus stated earlier, that his ultimate, his ultimate mission is not even to glorify himself. He's simply doing what his father has sent him to do. So if they kill Jesus, they have to deal with the father. Now I want you to see verses uh, 56 to 59. And here's what the mic drop I was talking about last week. Uh, you know what a mic drop is? Mic drop. Basically, in, a, in, a, in any type of public discourse, whether it's a debate, a rap battle, or a conversation, two sides are arguing, then one side says something that is so powerfully true or clear, or it's victorious, makes a statement that's so strong, after they speak... They dropped their mic. Obama did that, right? He just, boom, at some gala. So then he made it popular that it's not just in the rap game now. So he said it, then he did a mic drop. Comedians do it. They tell a joke, they drop their mic. One day, Pastor Albert's going to do a mic drop. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, but once you, drop, once you drop your mic, you just walk away because it's basically saying game over. Conversation done. There's no more you can say. What I've said is so sure, so strong, that you have no argument. I don't drop my mic because the AV has equipped me with a Britney Spears mic, okay? So, oops, I did it again, okay? But, but I, I can't drop the mic on you, all right? But Jesus is saying, like, look, I'm done. And so what do they do? They have no more words. They have no more words for him. So they go and they pick up stones to kill him. Because if you can't out-argue him, what do you do? 
you cancel him. That's our culture. They literally wanted to kill him. Now let me show you how they build up to it. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Guess it. They're speaking logically. Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. You're what, 32, 33 years old? And, and Abraham's dead. He's long gone. And you're saying you've seen him? You need some serious psychiatric help. You're a lunatic. So that's what the Jews said to him. You're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And look what Jesus said to him. This is the strong statement. This is the strongest statement in John, I think, where he says he's God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The word I am there, it is, it is translated, this New Testament is in the Greek, but in the Hebrew Bible, it is Yahweh. So he's basically saying, before Abraham was Yahweh. I am is the sacred name of God. I am is how God exposed himself to Moses. Moses said, who are you? Who should I say is sending me? I am. I heard my friend. Some of you guys were there. I don't know who was there. Okay, I don't know who was there at this retreat, but I know JJ was there. JJ Jim was there, so you can ask him. My friend Rancho preached this powerful message at one of our youth retreats, and he explained the I am in a contemporary way where it was like a mic drop. Okay, where, where he would say the pagan gods, and so this is Ran Cho, okay? Uh, he would say the pagan gods had this understanding, I am the sun god, I am the god of whatever, the god of the sea, the god of the ocean, the god of the land, the god of love, all that. And if you were to ask Yahweh, who are you? Are you the god of the sun? And Ran would say, God, Jesus, God would say, I am. Are you the god of the ocean? I am. Are you the god of bananas? I am. Are you the god of the animals? I am. Are you the god... I am that I am. I'm God of everything. I am eternal. I, I, it's not I was. It's not I will be. It is I am. Th that is powerful. That is the Hebrew God. That is the Old Testament God. That is Yahweh. I am that I am. And so Jesus is saying to these Jews, before your forefather was me, the creator, I am. You can't put, attach or limit me. You can't put anything behind the I am. Now think identity. What is your value? I am a pastor. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm published. I'm not. I have these degrees. I, who are you? Who am I? I am. Who are you? Right? And, and so when we speak of our value, we have to attach something to it. When you look at God and say, God, who are you? I am. I am. He, just his existence, just his being, is all eternally valuable and everything that you can attribute worship and worth is simply, he speaks 
and it's glorious. He just simply, he doesn't have to say anything. I am. I, I exist. And all the weight, the glory behind his existence. Everything is sustained and held together because God is, not because we are. It's not because God was. It's not because God will be. Everything in this world is held together. It is not falling apart because God is. He sits on his throne. He is alive. He's resurrected and he reigns. That's the I am. Before Abraham, before, before the person who you think, you Samaritan, we Jews, we are children of Abraham, we're chosen, we're people of promise, you're not. Jesus says, everything that you guys think you're all that, everything that if I stripped it away from you, it's all because of your connection to Abraham. And I'm trying to tell you, before Abraham was, I am God and you're children of Satan. So what is their response? Like I mentioned, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now get this. Jesus hid himself and went, went out of the temple. Jesus wasn't afraid. But he always knows how to make that statement and kind of get away. Because it wasn't his time yet. But you think Jesus didn't know what he's doing? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that they're going to put him on the cross. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows all of it. He knows that what Satan's thinking. He knows that the angels and the demons are fighting. He knows what's happening. But at the center of his plan, Jesus is just planting a seed. He knows his disciples are listening, and he wants them to pay attention. He knows the Pharisees are listening, and he wants them to feel the weight of his words. He knows that if there's anybody on the outside, the crowds who are listening, he knows. And he knows enough that he's like, I'm going to escalate the tension and get away. But when it's my time, they will think that they're putting me to death, but I need to die in order to resurrect because it's about eternal life, right? It's not about physical death. Now, here's the big idea. Let me give you a big idea, and I'll give you some short application. The big idea is Christ is the eternal I am who sets you free from the false I ams that promise life but lead to spiritual death. Where do we get this from? We get this from the entire thrust of John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is Christ is the truth that will set you free. Earlier, Christ is the light that frees you from darkness and spiritual blindness. What's John chapter 9 about? The blind man and the Pharisees. Spiritual blindness versus physical blindness. So, so you can see where Jesus and John are going. Christ is, how does he set you free? Well, he's the eternal I am. He's God who sets you free from all types of deception and lies. But here today, he sets you free from what the, the deception that the Pharisees and the Jews were under. 
I am a child of Abraham. I am a religious leader. I am trained by this rabbi and this rabbi. But what Jesus knew is they took religion and built a hypocritical system. They built up a system where it worked for them, where they could say, these offerings will get me out of this, and I can get around this. But the common people, they can't get where I'm getting. And the Samaritans, they're dirty and sinful. And everybody else is not possessed by God. And we're at the top of that, this Jewish religious corrupt system. And Jesus goes in there and he pulls the carpet, the rug from underneath their operation. And he exposes them as murderers and liars. And he says, everything that you think that should make you valuable, I am exposing. And until you can see that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from me, you will not have spiritual life. And, all, and when you look at application then, for you and me, what is it about you? Even Christian things. What is it about me? What is it about you? What is it that we would put on our resume or things that we have achieved or things that we're pursuing in life, good and bad things? What are the I am's? I would challenge you to go home this week pull out a piece of paper and write down who you are. And some of those things are good. They're God-given responsibilities. I'm a parent. I am a child. Uh, I am a coworker. I'm an employer. I'm an employee. Some of those things are good. And then you give more definition to it. Then you'll realize there are some things that are not that valuable, but you've attributed value to it. You'll also see that some of your primary responsibilities and God-given identities, if you don't have Christ, if you have those things and Christ is not central to your, 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 your family life or if Christ is not central to your work life, if you're trying to be an employee or an employer and Christ is not only central and he's not the defining identity that ultimately you're either going to fall into idolatry or you're going to fall into some type of problem. And what Jesus is saying to you and me is that you have all types of I am's that could blind you to think that there's this false promise. And the false promise is if you are just the perfect father, if you're just the perfect husband, if you're just the perfect employer, if you just make more money, if you're just the perfect fantasy basketball, football player, whatever it is, if you're just the perfect video game person, if you're just the perfect... You fill in the blank. If you're better at this, if you have this, if you have this, if you have the perfect physical vis, uh, physique, whatever it might be, then you'll have life. Then you'll enjoy life, and, you'll, and, and, and that's what Satan wants us to do. And he wants us even to get close. He wants someone like me to think, if you're a good pastor, then you're close to God. If, if you preach well, then you're close to God. If you have uh, more doctorates, uh, you're close to God. If you know more Bible, and, and really, that can blind even a spiritual leader to think that because they do things for God, that they're close to God. And God makes it very clear, unless Christ, unless we receive Christ as the I am of our lives, the central and dominating I am that defines all of our other I ams, we will fall short. And one more application, then I'll land the plane and send you the in and out. But <laughs> when, the, when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, th there's some application for you and me. But we're not, we're not crazy like, like the Jews here, okay? 
uh, I want you to understand what this is like. Jesus is coming in and threatening their greatest values. So if I came to you and took whatever you're good at in life, the one thing that you're good at, that, that this is your standing in society, if we take this away from you, you have no dignity, that's what he's doing to the Jewish religious leaders. And so what's happening is you have this space where you're like, this is my space and platform to stand on. And Jesus is saying, I want that space. So the natural tendency when Jesus says, look, you're all that, this and that and that, but I want to be the I am, meaning if you and I can't get to a point where, where when somebody asks you, who are you and why are you worth your salt and why are you valuable if you can't say, I am nothing, I am what I am because of the grace of God. Paul in Corinthians, I am of Christ. I am Christ. I'm trying to be like Christ. I'm trying to be of Christ. I, I'm trying to, to, to become like Christ. That my only value, all these good things, I, if you can't get to that point, see, it takes a lifetime for you to get there. And when you die, it will be that. When the shepherd calls you home, you will have nothing. When the shepherd calls you home, he will, you're not going to say, but I did this and I did this and I did this and I'm this and I am that and people refer to me as this. The only thing will get you into heaven is, is if you say, I am your child, I am of Christ, I belong in there because I am of Christ, I'm one with Christ, I'm united with Christ. You get it? Until we are one with Christ, in Christ, it's going to hurt because everything that we achieve in life, even good things, God is going to press in and he's going to press in and you're going to want to eliminate and eliminate and pick up stones and say, get away, get away. And he's saying, in order for me to free you, I have to become your greatest I am. I have to be the greatest thing that exists in you. I have to be everything that you are. And until I am, if you say anything else, but I'm Hanley, and I'm a pastor, and I have a doctor of ministry from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, you know, and I'm this, and I'm that, and I'm a Calvinist, I'm this and that, and I'm a Laker fan, and I'm a Dodger fan, and we're going to win the World Series, and I'm a Charger fan, and we're going to be good to all of these things that I would love for you to know. And I've read this book and that book. That has to die. That has to die. And, and what God is going to do is he's going to do everything he can to destroy that so that he could, could become everything. And then when you stand before him, you say, what are you worth? All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. That's it. Let's pray. Father, all we have is Christ. Lord, you are the great I am. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would come into our hearts and that truly you would destroy every stronghold, break down every enslaving entanglement, and free us so that you become the eternal I am that sets us free from every false I am, even the good ones that we may find value in. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter, that you would 
have us come next week restoring the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.